So I'm not doing a test with the microphone tonight. (laughs) It's my secret test. (laughs) So Carrie will figure it out. So those of you who know the story of the Buddha will know that there's a very interesting and colorful character that shows up quite a lot in the story. And the name of that character is Mara. And Mara is described as the tempter or the evil one or sometimes the lord of death. And Mara really is the archetype of the demon or the devil that stands for everything that paralyzes our capacity for liberation. And maybe Mara has come to visit you a few times, just a couple of times over the week here, where you may have felt the impediment or the obstacle of being able to move forward. Other religions also have this kind of archetype, this devil figure. In Judaism, they have Satan, which is in Hebrew translated as the adversary. Or the Greek have Diabolos, which is translated as the one who throws something across the path. We can that, uh, that that's such a a good image because we can have that sense that something's blocking us, or we talk about the hindrances. It's not, something hinders us as we're wanting to move forward. And in Buddhism, we have Mara, and in Pali and Sanskrit, it's this is uh, it's translated as the killer, right? Or, Gil reminded me today, there's also the translation of the force that deadens us. You know, it's really interesting kind of metaphors for what we experience when we, when we look at our own mind and we look at our own patterns and our behaviors. As much as we want to feel that energy and that upliftment and that sense of moving into more awakening and liberation. We can feel those forces that are moving through our consciousness that just seem to get in the way. We just can't seem to overcome sometimes. Because Mara has armies. It's not just Mara, but it's Mara and his armies. And these really are the forces that paralyze us and make us feel like we're bound, bound up. Sometimes we feel so tethered, so bound, like we can hardly move, almost frozen sometimes. There's a lot of Buddhist art where we can see these figures. There's the Buddha with these armies of Mara in the background. Uh, sometimes attacking the Buddha. And it's a very well-known metaphor for our practice on the path. 
So these armies are the forces that we're very familiar with, uh, sensual desire or lust. Lust is often depicted as these armies or bands of beautiful women you know, who are tempting the Buddha when he's trying to awaken. There's discontent, there's craving and lethargy, that's sloth and torpor and fear and doubt. And you can hear the five hindrances in there, you know, craving and aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. There's attachment to gain and praise, attachment to honor and fame. All of these are the armies of Mara. And the Buddha, this is what the Buddha struggled with. The Buddha struggled to overcome these forces because he saw that these were the impediments to his goal, this goal of awakening, the goal of liberation. And just before the Buddha woke up, when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, the the moment before, Mara was there. Mara and his armies attacking the Buddha, trying to frighten him from his seat so that he wouldn't open to the freedom, to the awakening. And what the Buddha does, there's this very famous story of the Buddha putting his right hand down to touch the earth, calling the earth goddess to bear witness for his awakening, for his freedom. And in that moment when his fingers touched the earth, Mara and his armies disappeared instantly and the Buddha was awakened, the Buddha was enlightened. And because of that, the Buddha is called the conqueror because he overcame. He overcame those passions, those forces which are depicted as Mara. He showed his unshakability and his steadfastness, which is really what we're developing, what we're learning, how to be this steady and stable and unmoving in the face of what we see in our mind, in our body, in our heart, so that we can overcome these very difficult forces of our mind. And this is a very famous mudra. A mudra is the position of the hands, this uh, earth-touching mudra. And this earth-touching mudra uh, he has the right hand is touching the earth and the other, the left hand is in his lap in the meditative pose. And that mudra symbolizes the union of skillful means and wisdom. The coming together of those two, knowing how to overcome through the, uh, um, the, the movement of wisdom, the awakening of wisdom within our own mind and heart. So Mara personifies all those evil or unskillful forces that overwhelm us, that color our mind so that we're not able to see clearly. And then out of that we act 
unskillfully through our thought, the thoughts that arise, the way they overwhelm our mind, and then through our speech and our action. And we do things, we act in ways that we uh, don't want to, we might regret, we don't understand why that happens, why we get ourselves into things that we do. And so this, the, the teaching really is about how to come out of this delusion, this confusion, this uh, uh, overwhelm of these forces of our, of our conditioning. It's interesting that this morning, um, John, I think it was this morning or, or last night, you know, how those things you can't remember when it happened. And I know sometimes yogis say, um, it was either, you know, last night or the night before, it was John or it was Gil, it was, you know, you, everything starts to blend in together. <laughs> and there was, I think it was this morning, I really don't know, but John said he was talking about this practice that he did, and there was this uh, uh, sign on the wall that said, desist from what's unskillful, do what's good, train your mind. And that was the whole of the practice. That was in this Tibetan teaching, the whole of the practice there. And so when I heard that, I, I, I knew that I wanted to talk about this union of, of skillful means and wisdom. And I said, that's what I want to talk about. That very thing, desist from what's unskillful, do what's good, and train your mind. And so I went back into the afterwards, it was this morning, and I went and uh, said to Gil, I said, you know, I wanted to just talk a little bit about that teaching. And he pointed me to a translation from the Buddha and the Dhammapada, where that comes from. And I want to read that because it's very beautiful. And um, I would like to say that this is a a new translation by Gil Fronsdale. (laughs) So Gil knew exactly where it was. So it goes like this. The Buddha's victory cannot be undone. No one in the world can approach it. By what path would you guide him who has no path, whose field is endless? The Buddha has no ensnaring, embroiling, craving to lead him. By what path would you guide him who has no path, whose field is endless? Even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones, who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. It is difficult to be born a human. Difficult is the life of mortals. It is difficult to hear the true Dharma. Difficult is the arising of Buddhas. Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And that's the translation from John, doing no evil, desist from what's unskillful, engage in what's skillful, do what's good, purify the mind, train your mind. Patient endurance is the supreme austerity. A beautiful patient endurance is the supreme austerity. The Buddhas say that nirvana is supreme. One who injures others is no renunciate. One who harms another is no contemplative. 
not disparaging others, not causing injury, practicing restraint by the monastic rules, knowing moderation in food, dwelling in solitude, and pursuing the higher states of mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. This practice and these teachings, this path is so much more than just letting be with what's happening, letting go. Sometimes this practice gets very simplified into those words of letting be and letting go. But it's so much more than that. It's really about generating these higher states of mind. We really can transform our mind so that that mind is imbued with wisdom and with love and compassion so that what's arising in the mind and the thoughts in the mind stream is an expression of that awakening, is an expression of that realization. And then what comes through, through our speech and our actions, is an expression of that wisdom and that love and that compassion. And so I want to talk about this union of skillful means and wisdom, and I want to do that through another um, sutta of the Buddha, which um, when I was reading the text some years ago, this one really stood out. It's a, a really fun sutta in some ways. And it's called The Greater Discourse on Ways of Undertaking Things. And I think what really struck me at first when I read it, because, you know, the Buddha gave this teaching 20, now 2,600 years ago. I think we're moving on from 2,500 years ago. You know, it's like another 100 years is going by. And, and reading the very beginning of the discourse, it sounds so modern. It's just exactly what we're dealing with right now. So this is how the Buddha starts his teaching. He says, Bhikkhus, which are monks, and also you could translate that as practitioners, anyone who's practicing the Dhamma. For the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Is that not the state of our mind? that we want the disagreeable things to diminish and the the agreeable things to increase. And then he says, yet although beings have this wish, desire, and longing, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now, because what do you think is the reason for that? And then the monks reply, Our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. (laughs) Having heard it from the Blessed One, we will remember it. And so the Buddha says, Then listen, bhikkhus, and attend closely to what I shall say. And then he gives an explanation. He goes on to give this teaching of the four ways of undertaking things. And basically he's, he's... He's pointing out what things, what things to undertake that will lead to happiness and what things not to undertake that are going to lead to more suffering. Basically, he's talking about sukha, 
which is what leads to hap- is, is happiness, is the translation of uh, uh, happiness, and dukkha, which is suffering, right? So sukha and dukkha, and he's really exploring this. And it's just so beautiful because the Buddha is, you know, he's so, he's so compassionate. When you read the, the, the discourses, it's just filled with his compassion to help beings come out of their suffering and experience more happiness, to feel the increase of happiness in our life. And he says, basically, people don't know what things to cultivate and to follow and what things not to cultivate and not to follow. And so this is how he organizes this teaching. He says, um, it's another list, isn't it? The list of four. He says, um, the first is that there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. And he says, this is like taking horrible-tasting poison. It's dukkha now and dukkha later. (laughs) And then he says, the second one is, there's a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and will ripen as pain in the future. And he says, this is like taking uh, sweet-tasting poison. It's sukha now, but it's dukkha later. (laughs) And he says, there's a way of undertaking things that is painful now, but will ripen as pleasure in the future. And he says, this is like taking horrible-tasting medicine. It's dukkha now, but sukha later. Because it's medicine, it's going to heal. It's going to make you feel better. And the fourth one is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. That's the one we like, right? (laughs) And he says this is like taking sweet-tasting medicine. Sukha now and sukha later. All right. And so this is, it's, it kind of goes along with how the Buddha is often likened to being a doctor or a surgeon or a healer who diagnoses our problem and then gives us the, the right cure or medicine to take. So it really fits very much in that vein with our practice of, of, of learning how to do the right things that are going to bring about healing of our of our soul, of our being, of our consciousness. So I want to go through each one and um, read the, read the, uh, the, continue to read the uh, analogies that he gives and give some examples of each and have you reflect on for yourself ways that this might actually uh, be true in your own life. Because as we understand this in a very practical way, then we can begin to identify these very things that lead to more pain or that lead to more happiness. Because ultimately, this is, the, this is essentially what this teaching is about. So that once we understand and can identify and, and, and know this, then we can start making choices that are going to bring about a transformation of healing a transformation that brings us into more love and joy and compassion and happiness and peace, all the qualities of the awakened mind and the awakened heart. And this is up to us. 
This is our responsibility so that the more that we can understand it, then we can actually take the, the steps to do this for ourselves. So the first two are really uh, about dukkha, and it, it is about when we really get caught acting out of our compulsion of habit, when we get caught. And so the, the, the Buddha says this, he says, Bhikkhu, suppose there was a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure, and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison, drink from it if you want. And as you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will not agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will come to death. <laughs> or deadly suffering, at least. And then he drank it <laughs> without reflecting and, and didn't relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. So he's, the Buddha says, similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens as pain in the future. So does anybody have a sense of what kind of activities might fall into that category? It's really suffering that leads to more suffering. When we act out in ways that cause more suffering to ourselves and others. And when we hurt, when other people hurt, it's just suffering all the way around. An example would be when we act out of our anger. And there's a sense of, you know, that anger, there's something, it feels painful to be angry, and then we can add on to that kind of indignation where we feel right and we feel uh, justified, and there's all this kind of contraction and solidification of a sense of our view and our opinion and our self and our location and we feel very, very solid. And not only are we suffering in that state, but the people who are getting that is, are also suffering. It's suffering all the way around. Or when we tell lies, we tell something that isn't true. It's, 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 it's painful. There's not anything that, that can be really joyous or happy about that. It all has a, and lies have this whole chain of reaction. If you tell one lie and then you know, somebody else tells somebody else and then they come back to you, then you have to cover it up with another lie and you, know, you have to keep kind of changing your story around to protect the secret. Or, you know, it's just a chain of, of dukkha. If we take things that don't belong to us, you know, or we're heedless in our relationship to life and to, to living, living beings and living things. I was reflecting on how heedless we can be sometimes. We just like swat a mosquito or a fly or insect, you know, just that kind of... Um, I, I, my, my mother just hates spiders or any... She lives in Florida and, you know, any cockroaches or anything in the house, you know, and they, they go around and they poison... Uh, everything so that the insect, insects won't go into the house. And, and if something gets in there, she just screeches and, you know, gets out of fly swatter or gets on a chair and just, you know, screams and he wants to kill that thing, you know. And it's just, there's so much suffering in that. It's dukkha now and dukkha later. 
And I was remembering when I uh, was met many years uh, every January teaching in, in, in Bodh Gaya, uh, these retreats in winter time, and there's some in the meditation hall at the Thai temple where we were teaching. And John just was there, like he was telling me five years ago, and it was the same. There were the, the meditation hall just fills at night with mosquitoes. And when you're sitting in, in your meditation, you just hear this high screech, like just screeching of this, you know, all the mosquitoes that are in the meditation hall. And it's, you know, what can you do? You know, you're not, you can't, I can't just kill all, you know, all the mosquitoes around me. I mean, we just put, like, blankets over our head, or sometimes people had mosquito nets, you know, so they could sit in the hall, put lots of mosquito repellent on. But, you know, sometimes you can't just keep killing to get rid of the thing that we think is the problem. It's not, they're not, it's not going to go away. It's the dukkha of that that we feel, dukkha now and dukkha later. Basically, it's the five precepts, you know, breaking any of the five precepts. If there's some kind of intentionality, if there's some consciousness around what we're doing, we're going to feel the pain of that. There's going to be some confusion in the mind that's coloring the mind. We, we feel the kind of disconnection and, and lostness not really recognizing the consequences of our actions. And there's some kind of strange assumption in that, that somehow if I follow through with this action, I'm going to be better off. You know, if I kill this thing, or if I tell this lie, or if I act out of my anger in some way, that it's going to be better. It's just, <laughs> we get into this very confused thinking, which the Buddha calls wrong view, right? Because there's a a disregard for the consequences of our actions. Or there's just not the wisdom that even knows that there's consequences, that there's somehow the suffering is going to be perpetuated through the speech and the action. It can be the very smallest thing. It doesn't matter. The Buddha says, do not overlook actions merely because they are small. However small a spark may be, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. However small a spark may be, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. For a very long time, I after I started my practice, I started to look at my motivation for my speech because I was aware of how powerful words can be. Once they come out, you know, we don't have that delete button. They're already out, and when they're out, they make an impact, whether they're kind or whether they're unkind. And so I was really trying to pay attention to the motivation, the intention behind my words. And I was appalled how often I was actually wanting to hurt people. That through that, before I had examined my motivation, I just wanted to, you know, get back at them. They hurt me, I wanted to hurt them back, you know. And that can be so unconscious for us if it's not examined, if we're not paying attention. And that, and that contraction in the body, in the mind, it's, it 
painful. It comes back. There's a kickback. Even if in the moment there may feel like there's some pleasure in it, it comes back very quickly. That kind of dukkha. Dukkha now, dukkha later. This lacks no wisdom, no mindfulness. We're just bound up in habit. The ego is bound. We're caught. We're lost in this. And it's a a kind of a a sleep state. We don't know what we're doing. This is dukkha now, dukkha later. And the Buddha goes on, sukha now, dukkha later. Suppose there were a a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color, smell, and taste, but it's mixed with poison. Drink it, if you will. (laughs) If you want. (laughs) And I love how in each one of these, the Buddha says, you know, if you want, you know, it's up to you. Nobody's going to stop you. We're telling you, you know, what's, what's going to happen, you know, so it's your choice. And uh, drink from it if you want, and as you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you, but after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. And then he drank it without reflecting, right? without reflecting. No reflection on the consequences. He just drank it. Because it's good good color, good smell, good taste. I'll drink it. Uh, And as he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. Right? Agreed with him. But after drinking from it, he came to death. Or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. So again, we're just acting out of this compulsion of habit. You know, just what feels like it's going to bring us some level of happiness. It's delusion, it's confusion, it's wrong view. So the obvious one really is this indulging in sense pleasures without really much reflection on the consequences. It's like that metaphor I was telling you about, about the clear, deep pool where we can get entranced by the beautiful colors of the the dyes that are poured into the pool, but we can't see it all to the bottom of the depth. Reminds me of one time when I was sitting at the three-month course at IMS, and it's over the September, October, November, December, and those, and so we're always there at Thanksgiving, and so on Thanksgiving, they just put out a huge feast, um, usually about four or five pies and six different kinds of ice cream, along with all these different dishes, and, you know, we've been in a kind of very renunciate kind of way of being, and then they put out this feast of food, and, you know, in the beginning days, I was not reflecting on the consequences of that, And I would just eat everything. 
And afterwards, I would feel so sick for, for a couple of hours. I mean, never, you know, because I was so, and this is six weeks or, you know, seven weeks into the retreat, so you know, very slow, very quiet. And so, of course, I'm having to, because I'm so, you know, conscious of my body, I was feeling every bit of the pain of the bloatedness and, you know, wanting to throw up, you know, and all this. It's just like, for for a couple of hours, like, no. Because of the, no reflection because of the pleasure of indulging in all that amazing food that they would put out. The pies, all homemade. You know, <laughs> you know berry and pumpkin. And, you know, why do they do that to us? You know, it's their fault, right? <laughs> they shouldn't do it. You know, of course, you know, I, I, I couldn't control myself. I'm sure I wasn't the only one. But that's the kind of thing where, you know, we just can't stop. We can't control ourselves because something just pulls us into that pleasure, to that uh, way of indulging in that pleasure. You can see this again around the precepts, you know, like the sexual precept of, and as a as a lay practitioner, when we're here, we take the precept of celibacy. So, to a certain extent, we're working with that uh, energy, and we're not acting out on it, and we're we're looking at ways that that energy moves in us if it's moving in us. As a uh, we take the precept when we leave um, to. That third precept becomes one of not engaging in sexual activity that causes harm to ourselves or to other people. Very beautiful, compassionate, caring way of coming into relationship. And yet what we know is that energy is so strong. The force of that, the way it, it moves through us, it's very physiological, it's very animal. And it comes from our animal instincts because those hormones are running through the body and the brain so that we can reproduce the species, right? That's our biological job. So as practitioners, we get to feel and be aware of the way that this energy moves through us. And such this wonderful precept of paying attention to the consequences of that energy so that we're not causing harm to ourselves and to others. And this sukha now, but dukkha later. You know, it's not bad. This energy's not bad. There's nothing to feel guilty about or feel shame about or feel wrong. It just requires a great deal of mindfulness a great deal of wisdom to know how to allow that energy to be real and true and authentic, but not have to act out on every impulse. You know, I mean, we, as, as our heart opens and we know how to connect with ourselves and with others, we fall in love. We start falling in love with everybody, you know? It's just, a, you know, it's one of the things that happens and sexual energy moves a lot, but how, do we, how are we with it in a way that brings wisdom and compassion and care and respect? Very strong force that moves through us. 
and the pleasure that we can get from intoxicants or substances. You know, when things are just so tough, we just maybe want to, you know, alter our mind state. Again, and the pleasure that comes from that, you know, the relaxation or the good feelings, you know, sometimes blissful or rapture. But that all has consequences and sometimes very serious consequences depending on who we are and, and our conditioning and the state of our, of, our, of our situation and our life and our own genetic makeup. You know, we have to be so careful. And so we, we really bring our mindfulness and we bring our wisdom to our, our choices around that and our, our relationship to that so, so that we are acting with wisdom for ourselves and particularly around intoxicants because we can't really do our practice if the mind is altered in a way that we're not able to be as present and as mindful and reflective about the consequences of our speech and our actions. So we have to bring a lot of care and, and, and wise restraint to these impulses, to these urges that pull us into the sukha, wanting sukha, but also perhaps reflecting of the dukkha, the dukkha. Sukha now, but dukkha later. And when we talk about raising consciousness or, or evolving as a species, This is actually what we're talking about. We're talking about the evolution of consciousness so that we're not just acting out of our animal instincts. We're evolving from that uh, uh, previous condition so that we become more refined, uh, more conscious, more sophisticated human beings that can control these urges and these instincts. This is the evolution and Hopefully, we are evolving. Um, Sometimes we can feel a little less hopeful than other times about that. But hopefully, it's happening on our planet. So the first two really do reinforce these patterns of greed and hatred and confusion when we're acting out of these compulsive habits. There's very little room maybe no room for transformation when we're in that state. The next two actually bring a balance of mind and they encourage transformation. They include the application of mindfulness and wisdom, this union of skillful means and wisdom. And the first one is dukkha now and sukha later. And I think this is a very important one for us in our practice because we can often think that somehow we shouldn't be feeling dukkha, that we shouldn't be suffering, that something's wrong with us, or that somehow we've made a mistake, or we've lost our way, or um, something's wrong. But actually, this path is a lot of dukkha particularly when we open up to the truth of our experience and start looking at ourselves in a very honest and truthful way, we're going to see a lot of things that are painful. You know, a lot of things we don't want to see. 
I think it was Ram Das. Ram Das said there should be a, um, a, a cautionary label put on meditation retreats. You know, he's, that should say, meditation is dangerous to your mental health. You know, because we start to see things that are really hard. But that's dukkha now and sukha later. This is what the Buddha says. Suppose there were fermented urine. And remember, urine, urine was actually a medicine. And it, not just in those days, but it is even in these days. Suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines, as a, and a man came sick with jaundice, and they told him, Good man, this fermented urine is mixed with various medicines. Drink from it if you want, and as you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will be well. And then he drank from it after reflecting. <laughs> he didn't just drink from it unconsciously, he reflected. He said, okay, yeah, maybe this is actually, even though it's not going to taste good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink it. And as he drank from it, its color, taste, and smell did not agree with him. But after drinking from it, he became well. And similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So this is really the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is really what our path is about in so many ways. And it's really even right here on this retreat, right? You know, I mean, the first couple of days are not easy. You know, being attacked by the hindrances of the, that incredible lethargy, you know, where you can't lift the mind at all into any kind of mindfulness. And then the struggle that can happen for people around that. You know, or the restlessness in the body and the boredom and the doubt and all the wanting and aversion. You know, it can, it's so strong, called the multiple hindrance attacks. You know? But yet, we stay here. It's always amazing to me, you know? We don't lock the doors, we don't lock the gate. You know, you still have your car keys. Some of, some of you, some, some of you don't come with cars. And I, sometimes people say... I don't, I don't have any way to leave. You know? I would if I could, but I don't have any way to leave. And you stay here through this. And it's a lot of dukkha. But there's something that knows that it's the dukkha now, but sukha later. At least that's the faith, right? There's a certain amount of faith in that, that there is going to be sukha later, that maybe it's just not going to be dukkha for the, for the rest of my life here like this. So we stay present with it and we don't turn away. And so any kind of discipline, really any kind of discipline that takes a lot of effort, a lot of practice, you know, yoga or exercise, you know, the exercise that we say, I'm really going to start an exercise program and then we never do because it's so much dukkha now. Even though we know it will be sukha later, we can't get through the dukkha now. And so we're, we're very impressed with people who have that kind of discipline, 
who can go through the pain to get to the results, the, the, the favorable results that come when we do that. Or breaking any kind of habit, we have to go through the dukkha. We have to go through the pain. Sometimes there are people who come on retreats who decide when they come they're going to give up their cigarettes. You know, they're very strongly addicted and they're going to say, just cold turkey, I'm giving it up. Take the opportunity. And it's really, really painful for people to do that, but they do it. I'm remembering a woman who did that on a six-week retreat, not just a week. You know, for six weeks, just cold turkey with that. We all have different kinds of things that we, we, are, we have to face in ourselves with this. I remember when I was early days again sitting with Upandita Sayadaw, you know, more the, the strict, strict Burmese uh, meditation master. And I didn't know this, but um, he asked us to only sleep four hours a night. That's it. Four hours a night. Once it's up, 20 hours a day, sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Well, I don't do very well on four hours, you know. And, and especially in the early years, I didn't have a lot of strength in my uh, discipline. And, oh, that was hard. That was hard. And I was in a room with two other women, rooming with two other women. And there was this one, the, one of the women would set the alarm for... Um, probably would have been like two in the morning. <laughs> and, the, and then there was another woman in the room who was her friend who she got to, she brought along on the retreat who clearly, clearly didn't have the discipline that the other one did. And so the one would set the alarm, the alarm would go off and this woman would jump out of bed and then she'd shake her friend and <laughs> drag her friend out of bed. And the friend would, you know, just be kind of like delirious... I would just be laying there. (laughs) And it was just all this energy to get up and start to practice. And it was, I I didn't have, you know, quite that kind of anxiety around it. But every morning that would happen. And, but yet I did challenge myself. I would get up and I learned so much about working with sleepiness and tiredness and dullness and boredom and lethargy because that was the point to break through some of those habits of mind that were just so unconscious, to bring, try to work with that, to bring more energy and clarity and discipline. And it was very powerful for me. I still today bring a lot of what I learned. I really transformed my relationship to sleep and to being sleepy, where it's, there's no struggle in it. There's no dukkha in it. It's just very, very, very sweet, actually when the mindfulness comes through that kind of dull or tired state. It's very, very sweet. And that came from that very rigorous retreat that I did. Another example would be anger. Because anger, anger is very hard. Anger is something that a, a lot of us can, you know, is very suppressed. Um, it's said that in, in the Buddhist world that uh, anger is, is really our shadow, because it's, you know, not, doesn't, we don't look like such good Buddhists when we're angry. And, you know, the Buddha's like sitting there, very equanimous, and, you know, Buddha doesn't get angry, right? 
So we can have all these judgments and all kinds of superego about ourselves when we get angry and really try to push it down. And so, of course, I have that, that habit as well. And so one of the things I'm working with now is just seeing if I can really allow that feeling of the anger and feel the heat of it and feel the charge of it, which is very painful to feel, but yet not act out of it, not have it, have it, uh, not load it off, not kind of dump it on other people or not just kind of go into kind of a rage because it's been suppressed for so long, you know, how it just can then start to explode because it, you know, you haven't let it come up. And, and so just, just feeling the unpleasantness, just feeling the dukkha of the charge of the anger and holding it in a container of mindfulness and wisdom and reflecting on the consequences of that, what would happen if that started to come through the speech and the action un, uh, unmindfully or unconsciously. So you're really, again, bringing a great deal of, a, uh, of reflection and uh, care around these very difficult forces of mind of, uh, again, of this, uh, this case, the unpleasant one of anger, as opposed to the pleasant one of lust. So we're working with the transformation of these energies so that we're not just acting out, discharging these energies. Another way of talking about that is a transmutation of the energy. Because the energy itself is very potent. It's very powerful and we can turn that energy towards our, our practice, towards liberation. There was a yogi who was working in the kitchen and she was so angry at somebody for the way they were doing their job or how they were in the kitchen. And it would happen again and again. And she came to me and talked to me in an interview. And I said, you know, just... Pull in your energy, you know, restrain your eyes, don't look at that person, turn, just keep turning that energy back to your practice. You don't have to keep getting involved in that other person's business and what they're doing and the way they are. Just bring that energy back, restrain yourself. And so we, we begin, begin to learn how, how to work with that. This is from a French psychoanalyst, uh, Herbert Benoit, um, who compares the transmutation of emotional energy to the metamorphosis of coal into diamonds. And he says, the aim is not the destruction of the ego, but its transformation. When there is conscious acceptance of who we are and what's happening, It is like the coal becoming denser through that acceptance and so blacker and more opaque and then being instantly transformed into a diamond that is perfectly transparent. We pull that in. We pull it in and that's how the transformation happens into that radiance, the power of our radiant nature. It's energy. It's powerful. This is what brings the balance of mind through happiness, mindfulness, wisdom. And the last one. Sukha now, sukha later. Ah, 
you know, relief. We can just have that big out-breath. And this is what the Buddha says. Suppose there was curd, yogurt, honey, ghee, which is um, the, the, the butter, oil, and molasses mixed together. And a man with dysentery came, and they told him, Good man, this curd, honey, ghee, and molasses is mixed together. Drink from it if you want. And as you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will be well. And then he drank from it after reflecting. And as he drank from it, its color and smell and taste agreed with him, and after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So this is where our practice is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. You know, it's really sukha now and sukha later. And we can feel this in a way really just by following the Buddha's teachings or following our practice. There is something that we feel, the sukha, we feel the happiness, even, even when there's dukkha sometimes. We can still feel the, the sukha, the happiness coming through that, that dukkha, and we know that this is bringing more and more goodness, more and more happiness to my life. And it's really when we're engaging in these wholesome actions that bring more happiness. The happiness that leads to more happiness and more balance of mind. And I think we know what kind of actions these are. You know, it's really any time our speech or our actions, even our thoughts, are kind and good-hearted, compassionate, where we speak truthfully and honestly, we're really connected with our heart, we're connected with our goodness, we're connected with our morality, not wanting to cause harm to ourselves or anyone. And there's such a a good feeling, sukha, now. There's such a good, we like this feeling. We feel expanded, we feel warm, we feel connected, open, We feel less separation, less solidity, more transparent, connected. Sukha, this is happiness now. An example is when we practice generosity and gift-giving. When we give of our resources, we give ourselves, the gift of ourselves and the gift of our resources. It's really the first teaching of the Buddha to lay people, was to be generous, to give, to support, to help those who need that support. It's something that I've been really following more and more in myself and just knowing that I want to do, I want to give gifts. I don't want to feel that I can't afford it or, you know, that I don't have time or, you know, I want to remember to honor Mother's Day or people's birthdays or, you know, or give gifts to people just because I care for them or or like them. And I don't know if you know, but the internet, you can get a lot of gifts now on the internet and you can ship them like overnight. 
you know, so it makes things really easy, you know. But there's a consequence, which is a little bit of dukkha, because if you wait, the shipping costs are very high. And, but yet, it, it does feed my procrastination a little bit. So, but, I, but, I, but I'm following this impulse, impulse more and more. Or spending time, you know, with friends in the hospital or calling someone whose parent just died or, you know, taking care of aging parents. You know, these, these are, they bring such happiness for us as we follow those, follow those impulses, follow those. And, and we, we can sometimes feel that, oh, but it's so inconvenient you know, it's inconvenient that my friend got sick now because it doesn't fit into my schedule. You know, but there, so there may be a little dukkha now, but sukha later, if we, if we follow that, follow those, those impulses of the heart to do what's good and kind and caring and respectful. By feeling happy, one abstains from things that bring unhappiness. It's like when we feel happy, we don't engage, we don't indulge in the things that are going to bring unhappiness. It, it overrides those actions and those feelings and those thoughts. It's a real effortless quality that arises from the heart. So we can see where the, what the Buddha is pointing to here, you know, the four kinds of, the four ways of undertaking. Two that bring us more pain, more suffering, and two that lead to more happiness, to more peace, to more joy. And we are really being asked to refre- reflect deeply on the choices that we're making to be awake, to be mindful of what we're thinking, what are those impulses moving through us, what are we saying, what are we doing, what what kind of actions are we engaged in. And the good thing is that even though we may not be connected to our motivation or our intention before we speak or act, there's always a moment where we become aware that we may be moving in a direction that we don't want to be going in and we can stop in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of an impulse, in the middle of an action, the awareness comes and I don't think this is going in the direction I want to be going. I'm not walking down the path I want to be walking down. And we can stop. And it may take a great deal of discipline, a great deal of strength, a great deal of patient endurance and wise restraint. But this is what we're practicing, turning around, turning those habits around so that we are liberating those forces of Mara and her and his armies. I always think of Mara as a her, but maybe that's because I'm a her. But Mara, liberating that so we touch the earth, the earth goddess as our witness, that we have a right to this awakening. And Mara disappears. 
So our practice is so much more than just being mindful and kind of letting be, but really being much more actively engaged in this transformation, in this process of transformation. I think it was in the Buddha said, it's not, it's difficult being immortal, right? It's not easy being human. But the Buddha, out of his deep compassion, has given us a path, given us a map, given us tools, and shown us the way of the union of the skillful means and wisdom. And now the rest is up to us. And so we'll end now and just by saying that the, the Buddha felt that this was such an important teaching, he said that it could dispel all darkness. And he says, just as in the autumn, in the last month of the rainy season, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun rises above the earth, dispelling all darkness from space with its shining and beaming and radiance. So too, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure dispels with its shining and beaming radiance any other teaching. Let's sit for a moment together. So we, this is our last night of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.